Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by Rudy Fail, who's a community member who works for the systems team at Automatic and is also a United States Navy veteran. Uh, I'll go ahead and link to his website so you can check out his bio and what he's working on in the uh, in the podcast links. Uh, how's it going, Rudy? Uh, hi, Ryan. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, for the listeners... Rudy's going to be talking to me today about my personal experience with uh, Handmade Network and programming and how I kind of got into the whole uh, scene here, and uh, also about Handmade Network in general. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty excited to uh, to talk about it today. <laughs> so we're, we're, yeah, we're doing this. Uh, why, why are we doing this? Um, a lot of people in the Handmade Network community, they wanted, you have a really nice podcast that a lot of the community follows, and a lot of people were interested in sort of interviewing the interviewer. So the person that does the Handmade Network uh, interviews every week. Um, and I offered to take that role basically because I wanted to give an outsider's perspective, um, somebody that hasn't been in the community in a long time that might you know miss something. If you talk to somebody that's been a community member for years or is your friend, uh, the idea there is to kind of come in from an outsider perspective and try to catch all those questions. And then also like the lowest common denominator, some of these conversations that you have on the podcast are with very smart people, very accomplished in their field. And, uh, you know, when they're talking about buffers or rendering or getting real deep into the algorithm stuff, that's great for uh, folks that are really deep into the content to try to absorb. But um, hopefully the idea for this is to talk to you in a way that's easy for everybody to understand. And um, folks that are interested in maybe in joining the Handmade Network um, might not feel so uh, you know, such a barrier to entry. So that's, that's the idea there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm excited to be talking, uh, about, about this sort of stuff and give my perspective. Um, I kind of came into the network a little bit later than most people. So I wasn't there from the beginning. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, I, I think it'll be good to provide that perspective for people. Yeah. Let's start there. I, cause I actually didn't know that. Um, I, I saw in the discord in the handmade discord that somebody else is the founder. Um, I don't really know how to say his name, his or his or her name. I don't know if it's a uh, what what kind of person that is. Right. Uh, yeah. So there there are actually four founders technically. Um, okay. And the history of Handmade Network is a little bit. Uh, it kind of evolved naturally, from my understanding. So what originally happened was Casey Miratori started the Handmade Hero series in I want to say 2014 or 2015, and that grew a community around it, which was mostly the people just watching on Twitch and following along with the series and, you know, coding along, learning. Uh, and eventually, the concern for having a place for handmade projects, which are generally meant to be about caring about the software and caring about the user and just doing a better job than you often see done uh, within mm -hmm. uh, software at large, uh, the con there, there was a concern that there wasn't a place for people to... Uh, to share and collaborate, uh, who are working within that space. So what ended right. up happening was a few people from that stream, uh, got together and formed the community, not only to provide a place for, uh, discussion about Handmade Hero, but also for a number of other handmade projects. And that was the original mission of the network was to provide a place and a platform for those people. So Handmade Hero got, for example, forums. Uh, every project gets forums. Uh, you can also check out, for example, the Handmade Hero annotated uh, episode guide, which is a service that the network provides. And that was sort of the original idea behind the network, and it kind of all sprung up from there. Uh, the people who were involved, uh, who are kind of labeled as founders now, 
uh, on the network are. Before we get there, before we get there, Ryan, um, that all that stuff that you were talking about is up and available still today at handmade.network. Like people can go and check out the different projects and the forms and all that stuff um, before, just before we move on to the, the founders and stuff, because I'm still interested in that portion, but I just wanted to make sure that I have that right with the, with the forms and the network projects and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the group of them, like basically the people who ran the website and who structured the community originally or Abner, Abner Coimbre, uh, he, he had a lot of streams back in the day um, and he sort of organized the community. And then there was also the sort of technical, technical side of the team who structured the website and that was uh the person that you're probably referring to on the discord was uh i th- i hope i don't mess up the pronunciation uh it's uh yahoon or yahoon uh van rain Got, gotcha um, okay and uh so he was sort of one of the people who worked primarily on the website although all of these are community members so they interacted in uh as community members as well uh and then there was also chronal dragon which was uh, andrew chronister and uh, Miblo, uh, who most people probably know from his work on the Handmade uh, Hero Annotated Episode Guide. And his uh, his name is uh, Matt Mascarenhas. Again, pronunciation. Apologi- apologies yeah, to I, everybody. I hear you. <laughs> but... We try. I, I mean, I, you know, you, you, you try your best. It's definitely no disrespect. I, 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 not everybody can have a name like Ryan. <laughs> you know, one, For sure. Two, two syllables, no problem. So, okay. Um, we'll, and I'd like to uh, circle back to definitely more on the community and the, the vets and how it came together. Um, but for now, let's focus on you a little bit, if that's all right. Um, yeah. So, like, yeah, where, when did you start programming? How long have you been programming for? I started programming when my brother, uh, I have an older brother who showed me uh, both QBasic and RPG Maker, uh, which were like two sort of different sides of the um, perspective of somebody starting out programming. Uh, I I started, he showed me those things when I was about six. uh, And I wasn't doing serious programming in the way that maybe we think of it now, of course. Uh, Sure. QBasic, I didn't even really do many interesting things the most interesting things were kind of copies of what my brother was doing and i would just tweak them uh but Mm -hmm. one example of the things that we sort of would do is we would put up ascii graphics on the screen and like have choices you can select and generally just have either really uh rudimentary stories or like a a choose your own adventure choose your own adventure that's how everybody gets started yeah exactly so yeah and there was one where there was like a hearing test where you could output pitches in QBasic, and uh, over time we would just raise the pitches over time, and then you would hit a button when you couldn't hear it anymore as like a hearing test. Um, oh wow! It was just like had a, <laughs> had a lot of those. In the, you should sell that software to the, the military. <laughs> they need it because nobody knows when that when that sound goes off. They just press the button. Okay. I don't know if you've ever taken a hearing test, yeah. but it's like a it's a big joke. So yeah, for sure. That's you funny. Should, you should definitely consider making some. Some money there. Okay, <laughs> so so started with QBasic and RPG Maker. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of similar to me. I, I like tinkered around with uh, Macromedia Flash back in the day, which yeah. was um, it's not around anymore. Apple kind of nuked that in in the late two um, thousands with uh, HTML five. They decided they're going that route, and so those skills became useless for me. So, um, so, so that's when that journey began for you. So let's talk about, um, you know, sort of when it evolved, were you formally trained or were you, did you, um, attend college, uh, those sort of things? Yeah. So I, at once I, I was doing QBasic and RPG maker for a long time and then I eventually found 
C++, and I was doing C++ for uh, pretty much throughout middle and high school, and I, uh, I entered competitions and stuff, and I would make my own games and engines and tools to make those games, so that was basically the foundations of uh, that allowed me to sort of move forward. Uh, I did go on to attend university. Uh, I'm currently finishing up right now. Uh, it's a computer science degree. Uh, so that is the extent of my formal training. Um, though I would say that the vast majority of my training has come more from either personal projects or uh, Handmade Hero was also a huge resource for me. Um, and that was that's primarily where sort of my training comes from. Uh, gotcha. So largely self-taught originally. I had some formal training later, which I think filled in some gaps, especially on the mathematics and kind of the theoretical side. Um, yeah. But uh, most of the practical experience or like my abilities in programming came from Handmade Hero and uh, yeah, personal projects. Yeah, I've heard. Um, I, I think I actually heard this on the Handmade uh, Network Discord. And I was wondering what you thought about this. Uh, somebody said all programmers are self-taught programmers in a way. And I was wondering if you agree with that or you think some people are formally trained. Hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting question. I think that to some degree, all programmers need to sort of walk themselves through the steps. Um, you, you can instruct somebody to, I mean, a programmer can be formally trained in the same way that a mathematician might be formally trained. Uh, maybe they've been exposed to concepts in a sort of formalized, standardized way. But I think that largely the individual in question has to form their own intuition about what, what it is they're doing. And that pretty much, in my experience, that seems to only come from actually doing it. Um, so I can't sit in a class for, you know, however many hundreds of hours and know how to program mm -hmm. if I've done no programming. Uh, sure. So... I mean, definitely somewhere in the middle. Uh, I think it, it depends on how you define some things, but uh, I think that it's uh, there's elements of both in there, I would say. Okay, yeah. It, yeah, it's an interesting question and, and definitely don't want to like broach the whole college, no college thing. Like, should I go to college? Should I not go to college? Right. But, um, you know, because I, I went to college as well and, and grad school too, but mm -hmm. uh, and I have my own opinions about that, but that's sort of out of the scope of this. I was just curious about what you thought about that question because I, I thought it was pretty interesting too. Is everybody that program self-taught? Because they're like, there does have to be like... Um, I don't think you can be a successful programmer if uh, if you don't like it. Like if you if you can't sit in front of a computer for hours at a time and you don't like what you're doing, um, I'm I'm not sure if you're going to be successful. Like in this in this field, um, you know. And yeah, there's there's an interesting thing there, which is that generally some of the I think the ecosystem does influence this to a degree, which is that uh, when somebody starts programming nowadays they are told to print out text on a screen basically as their, as their mm -hmm. first, you know, hello world sort of introduction to programming. Um, and when I think back on when I started, uh, I primarily wanted to make games. I wanted to, you know, have a little hero on the screen running around, uh, you know, fighting bad guys basically. And right. that's so far removed from, the introductory Hello world. Yeah. It's so far <laughs> yeah. removed from that. And I think yeah. like it's, it's always going to be to some degree far removed because uh, obviously like an action game or an adventure game is something is much more complicated than getting something on the screen. Um, but I think that 
the ecosystem does influence this to a degree because I mean, like I said, when I started, I was using RPG Maker to put a character on the screen and walk around. And it wasn't until, I mean, several years later, uh, maybe five, six years later until I figured out how to do that in uh, C and C++. And I don't know. I think that there's evidence to say that the ecosystem isn't where it should be if we want people to sort of figure out like we people can't reasonably objectively judge whether they like it or not unfortunately right now but mm-hmm. in principle i agree with you uh that yeah. you know it you do have to want to do a certain kind of problem solving uh largely be independent uh to a degree that's actually an interesting point that you made about um about what you said about people can't make an accurate judgment based on the way we teach it now and i think that's honestly a big part of what attracted me and probably others to handmade network in the first place is there's definitely a feeling like there's something wrong not only with the way a lot of software is bloated but um the way I, i guess software is taught in general and I, I, I kind of feel like it disenfranchises a lot of people, um, you know, without getting into the digital divide and that whole discussion, mm-hmm. just in general, like uh, you open a programming book or you attend a programming class, like you said, and the first thing you do is you, the, the first, the first step is always, you know, type out hello world. And that's your program. You look, you made a program and it's like there with no rhyme or reason to why or how that happens. And I don't know for sure, you know, uh, being a person that's not super smart, if there is a better way to teach that from scratch, but just like the idea of handmade and that, okay, we're gonna make every every line of code and everything that goes into the compiler and even the way that we choose to compile it with a, whether it's a batch file or a shell script or something like, we're gonna control every aspect of this is very attractive to know every know and understand everything that's going on versus like installing Python and opening up the interpreter and typing something. You know what I mean? So yeah, definitely. I think also what's pretty interesting with with my experience with the handmade space in general is that as I learned more about the way things worked at a low level, I was able to make high level decisions much more effectively. So there's a <clears throat> there's sort of a characterization of of handmade hero and handmade network and everything that is it's it's very uh, strongly about low level programming. And I think to a degree that's true. Like handmade network mm. doesn't like to leave the ground a lot. Uh, people like to see where they are and to understand how things work. Um, but it's not for the sake of performance necessarily. It could be. Uh, it's but but it's also for the sake of being able to make high level decisions more effectively, which is pretty interesting because what you see a lot of times nowadays is that uh, people are exposed to programming uh, in languages like you know JavaScript or Python. And mm-hmm. they're so far removed from the low-level details that they can't really reason about them very well. Yeah. And, it, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing about uh, learning about the low-level stuff in Handmade that it just provides you the the tools to be able to make higher-level decisions uh, well also. Well, you don't know what you don't know, too, you know. So when you learn, if you learn Python or JavaScript right off the bat you don't really understand how these decisions that you make are going to impact something at the lower level. Like if you've never uh, allocated or freed memory or even thought about what the type of impact that something's going to have at a performance perspective, um, it's very difficult for you to even consider. Like, you know, if you pull up any web modern project, and this is something that I rant about all the time, you might see, it's not uncommon to see, you know, hundreds of of node packages in there just plopped in. And they might only be using... um, you know, 
20, 30 single lines of code from that package. You know what I mean? And uh, that's actually, yeah, I think web is the worst space for it. Um, And as somebody that comes from a web background, that's honestly what's super attractive for me in the handmade space. And I would love to see one day uh, web sort sort of figure it out. Yeah, definitely. And it's also going back to the education thing. I think that web is in a particularly interesting position because it's also one of the platforms where it's easiest to get something on the screen nowadays. Um, right. <clears throat> there was a conversation recently, I think on Twitter where uh, some handmade or handmade adjacent adjacent people were talking about how easy it used to be to put pixels on the screen. And somebody <laughs> jokingly responded and was like, well, you can still do that with HTML. haha," you know, sort of thing. <laughs> and um, it caused like, I guess an argument, uh, but I was thinking about it, and even though it's um, the underlying stack is very bloated, uh, unfortunately, but that does explain why the web is so appealing to people. And mm-hmm. um, I think that it's a real appeal, and it makes sense for that to be appealing to people. Uh, you know, I can get an image on my computer screen uh, in like, you know, I don't, three, four, five lines of code or something, and just load a yeah. load up an image that I drew. I don't know, in paint or something and put it up on the screen. Right. Trying to do that with C, for example, and trying to reason about your software and everything, uh, that's a non-trivial task, uh, especially for somebody who's a beginner. Um, you'll Beginners normally, like f- when I was doing that as a beginner, I used a library just like most people do. Uh, so mm-hmm. something like Raylib or Allegro or SDL or something. And the, the, prob- the, the, the interesting thing about that is Installing the library itself is not a trivial task either for a beginner. Hundred percent. It's it's like this wall after wall after wall, and then you sort of get something on the screen. But uh, so that clearly to me that's a regression because apparently mm-hmm. thirty years ago you could get a pixel to change a color or to change its color on the screen in like three lines of assembly. Yeah, but there, but there was also only like maybe six hundred pixels total on a screen, you know. So I, I, I know I'm I'm exaggerating, but it, it's definitely not like it is. So I do agree that you know for web it's easier to get something on the screen faster. It's probably also more appealing because it's super in demand, and a lot of yes. people think that's where you know things of the future are going. If you look at things like. Um, Google, like the Google suite of tools, Google Docs, uh, Google uh, Google Meet, which is what we're talking over. You know, these different right. tools that are all embedded uh, web applications and, and those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And it's not too far-fetched to think that, you know, all applications, the, the processing and the computing might happen elsewhere in a data center somewhere. And so your computer, you know, specs or speeds will be trivial. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I, I definitely think that the world has moved towards a more... Uh, it, the internet's become very important in the way that computing works nowadays. Um, I guess the problem that I sort of see with it is that, uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like a good implementation of that kind of a system to me, um, especially with the quality of software experience nowadays. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think when it comes to handmade, it's about getting to a place where we are in a world that can support things like you know, editing the same document on multiple different machines, you know, doing, doing multiple operations at the same time and not having something break, for example, uh, without Mm. a lot of the, uh, the negative aspects of, of what's happening. Um, but I, I definitely do agree with you that, um, that's sort of the way the world is moving. And it's also 
uh, very strongly in demand. So it makes sense that people are sort of uh, very, very drawn to it. And it makes sense why it's an appealing field to work in. Uh, for sure. Totally. It, it would do everybody a little better, though, to uh, go back and, and do some C programming and learn some C and just the lessons learned there and apply. I say C, but just any low level language assembly, if you're daring, and even like some resources from the handmade network. And I can give you a good example that we used at Automatic even. Hmm. Somebody posted that uh, JSON parsing library that somebody rewrote in C. And if you think about how long JSON's been around as a data format and, and parsing it and stuff. There was a there's a bottleneck in JSON parsing that like exists and this guy was able to reduce it by like five X or ten X the current speeds. Right. And then wrote a white write paper white paper on it and then you know released the code open source. And um, I actually presented this to our uh, DevOps team and or perfops and they were like, Oh my god, and we you know we started using this in, in certain applications and it's it's just impressive sometimes when you when you really get down and do it. Um, and the last thing I want to bring up on this subject and hear your thoughts on before we sort of pivot and back to the handmade stuff mm -hmm. is uh, I heard somebody say once, and I think this was really the comment. I think I linked it in the blog post I made, but somebody said, like, if you have a car, okay, and you start taking things off that car, how many things can you take off? before that car stops working. And like, it's not a lot, you know what I mean? Like if I yeah. open the engine to my truck and I start pulling things off, like maybe I could pull one thing off and that truck will start. But if I pull two things off, it probably won't start. If you rip yeah. open any modern web application, you could probably start pulling stuff off and it'll it'll still be working, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's, that's really like something like we need to address. And like people are proud of that and it's weird. And like the modern, you know, web development community, people will be proud if something is like 5% or even 10% performant based on its full capacity yeah it's it's pretty interesting uh that that culture sort of exists um i think there's a there's this idea of computers are fast enough to handle it and my perspective is a little bit skewed because of the fact that you know i do game programming and engine programming so i see a skewed perspective of this but f from from the way my daily experience goes on a computer i I don't agree that computers are fast enough to handle what people are doing. I think that you can have that kind of an attitude if you're programming at a, like in C, for example, you can be uh, fairly, uh, the word that has sort of uh, been uh, passed around handmade network, I guess, is, is piggy. Like you can be a pig about <laughs> the resources you use. Um, I haven't heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, can, you can sort of just, you know, have have a ton of extra memory or something, or you can do something in a really naive way. Like in, you know, uh, in computer science education, for example, people are taught to really care about uh, asymptotic complexity. They're like, oh, n squared algorithm, like it's crazy. Uh, but half the time in C, like when I'm programming, I can generally do stuff like that. Like I can be like, I'm just going to allocate, uh, I don't know how many of these need, but I'm just going to allocate uh, 16,000 of them or so uh, mm. because... I know it's probably not going to be that big, and I know that that is not a lot of data in the grand scheme of things. Like, the textures I load into the program are going to be way more significant than that. So mm -hmm. uh, that's fine to do. And then, you know, I could do an N-squared thing, and it'll be fine. Um, but I think yeah. that there is a culture uh, in web that takes that to an extreme. Um, yeah. And maybe not just in web, but maybe in software engineering in general, where it seems like you start piling layer of software on top of layer of software uh, 
to the point where that assumption no longer becomes true. Uh, that the computer mm-hmm. is fast enough. Like computers aren't infinitely fast, so it's a matter of, it's it's not a matter of uh, whether they can or cannot break down. It's a matter of when they do, and sure. there is some level at like level of abstraction or level of layers of complexity or level like levels of software. There is some number of those that will slow it down enough to be a bad user experience. And current software goes way past that limit, unfortunately. And I don't really consider myself a performance person. Like I would be just happier with um, more reliable software. So I think as Mm -hmm. you start introducing these layers of complexity, not only do you get uh, worse performance, which is frustrating, but not like the biggest problem in the world. You also get worse reliability because the complexities of these systems interacting with each other uh, explodes. And that's a, that's actually a, a great, that is the point, if you ask me, as somebody that's a systems engineer from a systems perspective, it, it, it is performance. It's always a matter, you should always be concerned with performance, but more than that, like you should be concerned with reliability. I recently had a talk with a coworker and he said that like when building software, you should do the thing that always works. The one thing that always works and build from that. Like not the thing that works sometimes, not the thing that you're not sure about, but the one thing that you're sure is gonna work every time. We actually have a saying, um, on the automatic systems teams. I, I know I keep bringing up my work, but I freaking, I, I love it. And we do this stuff exactly, which like at the end of the day, that's the check that's cashed. That's who this affects is somebody that's that's building software at scale. And uh, we have a saying at, at automatic that's uh, simplicity scales and it's super true. You know, the simpler that you can make something, the more scalable it is because when you start adding on a bunch of crap and you're hooking it up to a system that's worldwide that has to run through all these things like, uh, you know, a lot of people are amazed, myself included, that the internet, you know, a protocol that was developed, I, I believe, in like the late 60s, 70s, something like that. Like, ARPANET came around like in the early 80s. You, yeah, you tell me. Uh, I don't, uh, <laughs> my understanding is that it was, all that sort of stuff happened in like the 50s, 60s, 70s range. Yeah, so we'll, yeah, we'll just say, yeah. gotcha. So we'll just say like a Cold War era, I guess, right? Sure. Like yeah. that, that sort of time. So, um, yeah, that that those sort of protocols developed then still work today. And I know that like we ran out of IPv4 and we need to go to IPv6. But if you think about other than that, you know, this stuff still runs. You know, we can have a conversation uh, with two people from anywhere in the world. We can send stuff and like that. All of that is pretty impressive. But I think to come back to your original point and, and before we move on, it, it is definitely not uh, without cost. And, and at the end of the day, it isn't infinite. And there is a, a computer, a server sitting somewhere that is making those processes happen. And as the guy that has to go to those locations and fix that stuff, um, <laughs> please be considerate. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say simplicity scales because uh, the culture of not just, as I was saying, not just web, but uh, this happens in C++ and um, I mean, it happens everywhere, but it's this culture of uh, just grab some library and use it in your program. Um, I, you know, I'm not about to argue that using a library is bad in general, um, but there is a culture, uh, especially in web, like you see with like node package manager and everything, you can just mm-hmm. grab an obs- NPM install. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, do it. Yeah, maybe guess. Yeah. <laughs> what do I need? Yeah. So sure. it's... Uh, the the interesting thing about grabbing generic libraries like that is that they're not simple. Like by because they've imposed the constraint of being generic for many problems, um, they've necessarily increased in complexity. So the simplest possible thing 
Um, like in my mind, whenever I've been working on software, I've found that the simplest possible thing is the one that makes as many assumptions about my problem as possible. And sometimes you can't make a lot of assumptions and it gets very difficult because you need to implement a more generic, more complicated solution. But I think that using those assumptions to your, to, uh, to your advantage really pays off in a lot of cases. Um, not just when it comes to performance, um, or, uh, anything like that, but also code simplicity and how easy it is to read your code, how easy it is to debug your code, um, and therefore mm. how reliable it is. And, and also this has massive performance implications. Um, like doing a simpler mm. task will always be, uh, less work. Yeah. It'll always be less sure. work than doing the more generic solution. So, um, doing that effectively almost implies understanding all of the low level details, not all of the low level details, because there are, you know, you could drill down forever, but <laughs> sure. But at, but at a high level. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah. It, that to me, that's sort of what like handmade is and it all kind of ties together. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're, when you're thinking about this stuff, it's almost like if you're doing the reliable thing, you're also doing the performant thing and you're also doing the readable thing. And that kind of takes a commitment, you know, to, to digging down and doing that because it, it's very easy. And, and it's actually kind of ties back to what we were first talking about when we talk about the way programming is taught, because even in a lot of programming courses or books or whatever it is or information out there, the first thing somebody might say is like, oh, install this library. Okay, cool. Now you have a GUI. Now you have right. buttons, you know, whatever the case is. So I, I definitely think it's it's all related in a way. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. Yeah, there at some point there was this dichotomy of high level versus low level that arose. And I mean, I still use it in my speed. Everybody kind of uses this uh, paradigm of, high versus low level, but um, as I sort of said earlier, it wasn't until I found Handmade Network and found Handmade Hero and all these things that I realized that they're not really separate. Like, you have to build... It's, it's you know, you have to stand on a platform to build a building. Like, that's a terrible analogy, mm -hmm. but you get, my, you get my idea. Like, you have to stay grounded so that you can stand up on a tall platform that you made and make high level decisions like you need to have a strong foundation maybe there's like the easier right. way to say that like you yeah. have to build a strong foundation to build a skyscraper this is what i'm here for okay i'm for here sure. to break the smart the smart the smart person thoughts down to like the base person understanding <laughs> for sure so yeah gotcha you gotta i think there's like a southern saying for that like gotta have a oh the house don't fall when the bones are good i think that's the one yeah. that came out with a song yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so i think we i think we drifted enough there so yeah. let's uh if we if we could let's please circle around back around to um handmade so we talked a little bit about how it started about how it was founded um would you mind and and we sort of talked about this would you mind expanding a little bit on what are some of the goals of the handmade network yeah so there was a i i've been using this model um uh pretty frequently now it was told to me by somebody who was on the podcast previously uh his name is uh, alan webster for people who didn't catch the podcast but the model that Wait he long. sort of told me was the uh, at some point, I don't remember exactly when this conversation took place, but I don't think it was on the podcast, but uh, it was generally this idea of at every point in time, you have a set of decisions you can make and those decisions lead to new decision-making positions. So what you get is a tree of possible, of, of possibilities basically coming from one mm -hmm. particular point in time where you can make any set of decisions. You can go to any uh, one of those decision 
uh, any, any one of the consequences of those decisions and then make a new set of decisions, which, you know, it's kind of exponential in how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think originally handmade network was about rethinking some of the decisions that were previously made. So within this model of like a tree and it kind of goes down, uh, with multiple nodes, I think originally handmade was about climbing back up the tree, like towards the root of the tree. And of course, for people who aren't uh, programmers, I'm thinking of a tree in like this top-down way where there's just one node at the top and it kind of like, cascades down. Uh, that's not the way that most people sure. think of a tree uh, where it goes, you know, from the bottom up. But, you know, it's kind of weird. Right. But <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a better model for like for like normal folks, like maybe a pyramid at the top where there's one. And then, you know what I mean? If you drew, if you drew it like in school and then you would have like uh, more dots and stuff, like maybe a color by numbers. That's how somebody like me would think of something like that versus, you know what I mean? A yeah. tree that comes from the ground up. And so just to be a little helpful. So sorry about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, sort of, I think the original goal of Handmade was to climb up the tree or, you know, go back closer to the top of the pyramid within that analogy and sort of <laughs> kind of reverse some of the decisions that we made. Like the decision to assume that you can just stack all these layers of software that you always have to reuse some piece of code that somebody else has written instead of, you know, developing something that works for your problem specifically. Um, the original idea of handmade, I think was just doing that process of going up the tree or, or reversing some of those decisions. And I think now it's starting to shift to going back down the tree or going back down the pyramid in in a new way, like taking a new mm. path forward um, in terms of how we think about computing and how we uh, push the envelope of what people do in the industries. Because, I mean, the first lesson of Handmade is sort of like, yeah, I know to not include boost in my C++ program or something, you know, but, but now that you've, now that I've gotten past that point and I can write my own like allocators and do my own introspection on my code or whatever, it's like, now where do I go? And for, mm -hmm. for a lot of people, they just want to make a good quality product. And that is itself going down the tree in a new direction. Um, yeah. but I think what we're starting to see is a lot of people, uh, they're, they're sort of trying to shift the paradigm of computing in a lot of different ways. Um, <clears throat> like for example, we have uh, programming languages on the network which are sort of rethinking some of the decisions that were made, uh, for example, in the development of C, for example. Uh, and the one I'm referring to there is uh, Odin, which was made by Ginger Bill, who was also on a podcast episode. Yeah. Um, so Great episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great conversation. And I think uh, within that model, that's how I define the idea of handmade. It's sort of okay, well, clearly we're in a bad place. Let's reverse some of these de decisions and now let's make new decisions to pave the way forward, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's actually kind of super interesting the way you described that about kind of navigating back up the tree mm -hmm. and then and then finding a new way forward. And the one thing I think it takes, and, and this is going to sort of lead into my next question, is like exposure. Because if all you know, like if you look at veteran web developers for... Oh, I said that wrong. Veteran web developers, for example, and you look at like web technologies, you know, uh, when I came out of the Navy, for example, and got back into programming and all that other stuff, um, and I went to web, it was like a jQuery world. Everything was about dollar signs <laughs> and selectors and, and all that everything. And I got, you know, I kind of got that down. 
and I felt all cool. And then it was time to get a job, and it was like, "Are you a React developer?" And I was like, "What's React?" You know, and it was all about React, and no one cared about uh, jQuery anymore. And that's sort of, you know, the the landscape in web is very dynamic, and it changes very fast. But like for somebody that's that's been a web developer for a long time, they've all, they've only seen these like stacking or shifting technologies, and you never kind of get a chance to go and look at the shifting sands and go back up. So you kind of have to be exposed. You know what attracted me to Handmade was looking at some of the software that you and other folks made, and I was like, I was blown away. I was like, okay, you can make this, you can achieve this level of fidelity, and and like be running it on you know half a thread exaggeration but you get the point right, right. and like and with a with a two megabyte executable like that's incredible yeah you know how's that how's that even possible because i'm sitting here loading up facebook and chrome and <laughs> it's taken up 99 percent of my 32 gigabytes of ram and my four gigahertz processor you know what i mean so so for that to be done on the other side of things is is just like that for somebody like me that loves programming and loves the space and loves technology to see something like that i'm like i gotta join that community and like i have to go back up the tree so do you think that um everybody thinks like that or just folks in the community like what's it gonna take to get because I, I i think i i do think web is the greatest space now in terms of programmers in terms of uh people that are programmers, web is the greatest space, and like, what's it gonna take to get these folks to like realize that there's a different way or maybe rethink this stuff? Because it moves so fast that I don't think anybody's actually thought to go back and like look at some of the underlying technology or even the people that do are like, you know, vastly overshadowed because it moves forward so fast. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting question. I don't know exactly, in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of predicting the future, I don't know what could be necessarily successful. What I would hypothesize would be successful would be something, an easy way to say it would be the proof has to be in the pudding of what we do. Um, one thing you'll see with a lot of people who are very opinionated about the way that people should program is they'll make things like code style guides or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Handmade never really had one of those things because the ultimate re reality is that code style guides don't have that large of an impact on on the way the software works. Like, there are some things, obviously, like, hey, you know, don't dynamically allocate memory all the time, and it gets, like, super hard to free it all, so you have all these leaks, and then you have to use smart pointers, and those incur a cost, right. and, like, all these things. There are some ways you might go about problem solving that are sort of implicit to handmade, but there's never, like... Uh, rules like, hey, we need to put the brace on the same line as the opening if statement or like s stuff like that. Like, and I, th I see. I think when it comes to handmade, sort of demonstrating its value to people, I think it does ultimately have to be about showing its possibilities. Like, it it has to be less about persuading people why we're right and more about showing them why we are if that makes sense um totally i mean i mean yeah just the just the idea that something just just the idea that somebody that does program or is interested in the space in general can look at something i mean you can tell even somebody that maybe has never programmed before like that looks better than that yeah or that performs better than that right from like a user experience you know if something takes five seconds to load or like two seconds to load in today's world that matters yeah. You know, it really does. So, And I think it's about pushing boundaries as well. Like, I don't think, for example, if I wrote, uh, let's say there's a Unity game or something that renders, you know, 20 things on the screen at once and they're all flying around and interacting with everything else. 
and it's acceptable frame rate, <clears throat> let's say it runs at 30 hertz or something. Mm-hmm. And if I re-implemented that same thing in C, I could get it to 60 hertz, but I haven't added anything new design-wise. Like, maybe it's a slightly better experience, and that's important, especially to... I mean, like, I'm kind of... Uh, for whatever reason, I'm really partial to, like, better frame rates and stuff. Uh, like, I, I'm very sensitive to that for, for whatever reason. <laughs> but um, for most people, it's not going to make a difference. But sure. I think what can make a difference is, okay, now, you know, we don't have 50 things on the screen. We have, or whatever the original <laughs> number I said was, but um, now we have 1,000 things or 2,000 things. And it's a surface-level kind of example. Um because it's not always about adding new things um, or adding more, like a higher number of things, but it's also about um, using the computer in a way that you couldn't have if you were making all of these assumptions about uh, about the way you were writing software that maybe was good enough to get you to the 20 enemy case or whatever, but um, maybe now it's uh, it's 20 enemies, but now they're all really smart or something, or now there's a hundred yeah. of them and they're, and they're slightly smarter, but less smarter than if there were 20 that were like this idea where mm. I think it has to be about pushing the envelope in some way. Um, yeah. And that I think will push people to sort of see um, there is a lot of value in this space because it does ultimately result in things that weren't possible had that not been the way the software was written, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and let me rephrase that in a, in a way that I was thinking about it. And tell me if I'm, if I'm way off here. But what about, like, to me, what that does and what you're describing is the removal of constraints. So, like, if I'm making a game and I want to put 20 enemies on a screen and I show it to my friend and my friend says, that's pretty okay, but, like, <laughs> what, wouldn't it be cool if you could fight an endless wave of a thousand enemies? And you're like, well... I can't do that, in, and I don't want to like single out Unity, but in, in or you know right. Godot or Godot, whatever, however people say it. There's actually a sort of discussion about that. But so Godot, Godot, Unity, Unreal Engine four or five, and I'm like, well, I can't do that because like that will blow up the computer. But you can go back and like what you're doing is removing constraints when you when you go down and you're handling that stuff yourself because now you're not you know, adding an object for every time you need to add an enemy and deleting an object and adding like a script to that controller and inserting it into the game. You can actually like build that out your whole way. That's most, that best fits your use case and is most performant for like what you need, you know? So I, it it kind of lets you do more in terms of like, if games are a result of what we can conceive and what we can imagine and what we want to do, but like if we're limited by the software that we use, that kind of makes it less interesting. Yeah, one of the things that I found in my own experience, just kind of growing up and using RPG Maker at first and everything and moving on from that, was that I was always fighting my tools a little bit. Um, RPG mm-hmm. Maker, for people who haven't used it, is... Uh, I was using RPG Maker 2003 at the time, um, and I never went mm. past a version, uh, but uh, or went past that version, but it's generally like... It's all about games like, from what I can tell... Um, the final fan like the old final fantasy games it's very right. much structured around that style of game uh yes but as a kid i never actually played those games like i never cared <laughs> about those games i never really played them um oh, shame <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i probably should um yeah. but uh it was interesting because the game that i was trying to sort of recreate in my head not recreate but take ideas from was uh, A Link to the Past, because I'd played Zelda games like my entire early life. And as people probably know, if they've played Final Fantasy and A Link to the Past, the two games in terms of the way they operate, like they're superficially similar. Like you're looking down on a world and there's a dude moving around. 
but the way the player moves, like it's not tile-based in A Link to the Past, and the combat has these, the way you hit, the angle between the player and the entity when the player hits the en uh, enemy um, determines the way that the enemy is going to fly and, and stuff like right, that. Right, yeah. And RPG Maker, on the other hand, has this thing where it's you're, you kind of go into a battle screen and it's completely separate from the right. game. You do Which is very Final Fantasy. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because I never really cared for that battle style, so I'd always try to like hack around it and like get that kind of combat system to yeah. work, like a Link to the Past style in RPG Maker. It never worked very well, and um, <laughs> that's like it's kind of a bad example because you could totally do that in like Unity because it's more generic of a game engine. But it's an example of how um, the way right. to me being able to remove that constraint was ultimately being able to write it myself. Or yeah, or, or or like achieve the goal that you had in mind. You know what I mean? Um, right. And and it's a funny parallel. The last version I think of Macromedia Flash I used was two thousand and three. Okay. And and it was the same thing. It was like that was more software, if we're being honest, for like making Flash movies and and right. like banner ads at the time and stuff. But then you would like have to hack around it uh, to make games. And I believe in like future iterations and stuff, they got around that with like. Um, some adding some support in action script two or three uh, i don't remember what the thing was at the time but but it's the same point so w for you like going below what rpg maker had to offer you were able to like uh, achieve your the vision that you had in mind which is like what it's all about which is exactly what we're talking about yeah. removing those constraints and and doing what you set out to do and like granted you hacked around it but it's not the right way and i think every programmer has been there at one point where it's like this isn't the right i in fact i think every time i sit in front of a freaking uh, a text editor i think this isn't the right way but like this is the way i know how so <laughs> you know what i mean like that's right. that's the way we do it yeah 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 so yeah and it's it's also not necessarily I don't want to convey my experience poorly um, because it wasn't just that it was the wrong way to do it. It was that because it was the wrong way, it resulted in a much worse experience uh, because the engine I was using didn't have these interesting, like the enemies couldn't fly at an angle because they're all locked to, uh, to tiles. Right. So it's, and that's an assumption that the engine made, which made perfect sense for them. Like nobody did anything wrong there, but the way to, get around that is to not use that engine and to use something else um, and to, right. to, to remove the assumptions that those people have made because they don't apply. Um, and right. the only way that you know how to do that is by uh, like when I was probably four or five years old, I didn't know what the heck a tile map was, but you have to know what a tile map was if you ever want to know to remove it from your problem space. So right. I think there's, there's a lot of value in digging deeper and being able to, Remove those constraints, as you say. I think that's a, a really good way of putting it. Cool. Well, so let's... Uh, boy, we keep getting off on these tangents that are totally like unrelated in the subject that we start with. So let's... Right, sorry. Um, I, let, yeah, no, no, it's, it's actually... It's probably my fault because I actually... I, I start thinking about what you're saying and then I'm asking you a question and I'm like, well, let me rephrase it and then we go off. So um, I, let me try to bring it back to um, Handmade for a second and then before we move on. Right. So uh, we, we talked a little bit about um, the, the network and some of its goals and actually that conversation that we previously had I think was good in terms of like what are the goals of the network and why it's there. For sure. Um, I think my next question is like, how did you become the lead of, of Handmade, Net Handmade Network? Like if you look at your Twitter bio online, it says led by, or I think the Handmade Twitter says led by Ryan J. Fleury. Yes. And I, and so can you 
can you explain a little bit about how that decision was made, how it came about, et cetera? Because it wasn't, as you say, uh, founded by you or right. or maybe, you, right? So could you explain that? Yeah, so I was introduced to Handmade Network before I started working on my game, which became The Melodist. And that was a, <clears throat> that became a Handmade Network project. And I worked on it for a long time. And uh, during that time, I became, I began to know the people within the community like the founders for example um so i i went went to handmade con 2016 and i met up with uh abner and um as handmade uh meetups kind of come and go uh as they do uh, i kind of would go to them and, and meet up and i can't explain abner's reasoning 100 percent, but at some point he just asked me he was like hey like i'm looking for somebody to pass the torch on to and for one reason or another, he thought that I was the right person <laughs> to pass the torch yeah. on to. So that's kind of how it happened. Uh, yeah, I don't want to speak for his reasoning, but uh, that's gener- that's, that was generally the structure. So I, I was kind of a community member for a long time, and I'd been working on my project. And I think that sort of let people know who I was. And um, mm-hmm. after a while, the team decided that uh, I would be kind of the the right person to move forward with i don't think i was in competition with anybody that's just kind of sure the, no the yeah, yeah. nothing to. like that right but so and what were your thoughts and you were you were just thinking like yeah like i could do this um this is uh this is you know everybody knows me everybody kind of like um has respect for me and what i'm doing and i treat people with respect and maybe this is a good idea uh, to go forward I, I mean any thoughts there i think I definitely started to realize that there were a lot of problems with the, like, as I started working professionally, not like completely full-time. Cause as I said, like this was, this was around the same time period when I was just getting into college. So I wasn't, mm. I wasn't a full-time employee anywhere, but I had started working in different environments or doing internships. And as I kept kind of going along, I started realizing how displeased I was with the way that the software engineering world kind of works at large. And that made it really important to me. And being somebody that gained so much from Handmade Network when it comes to the the way that it changed how I look at software and how I write software, I wanted to sort of hopefully contribute in, in this way to push that idea beyond just myself. Right. To improve the industry in the best way that I could. And before before Handmade Network, I didn't really think of myself as somebody who was really good at leading communities or creating communities or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it ultimately was very important for me for that reason. Did you just did you just felt like somebody compelled to like push the envelope forward and you were like, if if there's somebody out there that's gonna do it, like I know I have the the passion for this. It's something I care about. It's it's very important to me. And then so perhaps when you were asked, you thought, okay, yeah, okay, I, I can do it. I have like the drive is there. That's what it all comes down to is like you know the will or the skill. And you you thought you know maybe I maybe at the time you didn't know I have the skill, even though I I think you do personally. Oh, but um, <laughs> maybe maybe you didn't know, uh, but you know you thought I have the will. You know for sure to push this push the envelope forward in, in this software thing that I believe in. Definitely. It's hard to know if somebody else would have been a more effective mover, but you know, in the moment I'm like, I care about this. Here's an opportunity. I'm going to take it and do what I can, you know? Um, right. And that's, that's what it's all about. Like I say that, you know, the will of the skill. So for sure. um, moving on from there. Uh, mm-hmm. So as the lead, what, like, what is your goal for the handmade network and, and where do you see it in five years? You know, what is like, what is this to you? Yeah. Moving with the 
the, the sort of tree model that I introduced earlier about making new decisions and paving the way forward. Uh, generally, when it comes to the Handmade Network, I want to provide a space that facilitates projects that are looking to push the envelope in that way or go down the tree. Um, me personally, I'm not super happy with the software world and I know I can't, mm-hmm. like I can, I have my own ideas about how the, the, how it should change. And, you know, I, I have my ideas in that space and I'm working on stuff in that space. Um, but ultimately mm-hmm. I know that, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the person to write the next computing platform. Uh, so it can't just be me. <laughs> and, uh, right. So what I hope is that it provides a space where that kind of progression is possible. And hopefully, I don't know about five years, but, you know, maybe 10, 15 years or something, hopefully we can start seeing something like this is a computing platform where all the things about the current computing platform just aren't true anymore. Like there people, <laughs> people actually can put pixels on the screen in, th- in three lines of assembly or something. <laughs> right, um, right, right, right. Or y- you can generally pose the market to just make the user's experience so much better and to expand the capabilities that we have when we're writing software. Um, And again, I think when it comes to the network, it's about making that possible for people and not just in terms of like having a website for projects that are trying to do that or anything like that, but having community interaction and interacting with the community myself um, to promote a culture that thinks about software that way, not just about, you know, doing it maybe more reasonably, like understanding your tech, and understanding the assumptions that you're making, but also like, okay, well, how do we, how do we change the decisions that were made in the past? Like we've, we've, right. we've attracted these decisions. Now let's think yeah. about new ways of doing it. And that, that's, that to me is the most valuable aspect of the community is, is promoting that way of thinking about these, about these problems. Yeah. Do you know what's powerful about that, Ryan? It's a, uh, it's an idea what you're talking about. It's not, we're not talking about a set of best practices or, right. um, you know, a, a certain way to do things. We're talking about like an idea. And if everybody can get around an idea, anything's possible, which is super powerful. And you mentioned um, an OS of the future. I think that's a handmade project, right? Somebody's making a freaking yep. OS. Yes. Yeah. Something that somebody's doing. Yeah, definitely. So, and let's use that as a segue to some of the um, other handmade projects and uh, some things going on so so one of the things being made is an operating system um, there's some other stuff and some of the people you've even had as guests on the uh, podcast if you want to cover any of that yeah for sure some of the most popular projects I've had a few of them on uh, to the podcast of course there's there's four coder uh, which is a handmade text editor that's well it's Calling it a text editor is like underselling it a little bit because it's <laughs> it's uh it's all about code editing specifically, and yeah. it's just looking for ways to innovate in in the space of editing code, and that's a really hard problem, and it's uh, clearly a space that can empower programmers and to allow them to understand their code better. Uh, it's a super valuable example of that kind of philosophy. Uh, additionally, there's Odin, which I mentioned earlier, which is sort of trying to rethink some decisions in the programming language space. Um, you know, C was originally made in like the seventies and it developed like, uh, right. over the next few decades. And, um, that's a long time ago and we hasn't changed much right. <laughs> since then. <laughs> yeah. Like C99 yeah. definitely got a little bit more ergonomic, uh, but it's, or it, it kind of feels a little bit more ergonomic to use in my opinion, but there are lots of weird edges to it and lots of bumpy things to it. And 
it's not as good of a tool and we know more now to make a better tool than C. Um, it's hard right. because so much of the world is, is sort of built around C, but um, we definitely can innovate in that space and that's what Odin's doing. Uh, similarly, mm. um, you brought up uh, the operating system project, which is Essence on the Handmade Network, uh, which is a uh, handmade operating system from scratch. Um, yes. I, I'm not going to go into details because I'm not an operating systems like guru. I don't want, yeah. I don't want to say anything uh, completely wrong. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's all about it's all about reevaluating our assumptions and making making new decisions. Um, yeah, as a as a Linux guy, just looking at that, that it like looks super impressive what they're doing. And I think anybody that you know, um, talking about uh, four coder a little bit, and and you guys said this on the podcast, you and Alan, you said you know it's a problem that looks easy but is really hard um, in that making a, a code editor. An operating system is a project that looks hard and is really hard. Right. Like you've got to re- you've got to really know what you're doing to like dive in there. So kudos to the the uh, fellow that's working on that. So for sure, yeah. And um, I mean, there's I I can't possibly list all of the handmade network projects because there's, sure, there's quite yeah. a few. But um, you know, obviously we have educational series like Handmade Network, um, or, or sorry, Handmade Hero, uh, uh, Bitwise, for example. Uh, there's custom de- or uh, completely handmade debuggers like Remedy BG, uh, Code Clap. There used to be something called CDBG. Uh, I believe I don't know if that's been officially like discontinued. Um, ultimately, because its creator got hired by Rad to work on their debugger, mm. <laughs> which is that's right, that's right, <laughs> exciting but uh, yeah. a little bit disappointing at the time. Uh, luckily, Remedy came in and sort of provided a good alternative, but. Um, so a lot of people have worked on handmade debuggers. There's, there's drawing programs, there's photo editing software. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I, I want to make sure I remember the name. Um, I, so I think I saw this, this is the guy that was like, he could apply the same, uh, uh, settings that you would apply in uh, Lightroom to like a hundred high quality photos at the same time. And it was like crazy fast, right? right? Like that yeah. was the same. We're talking about the same thing. I don't, I, I don't remember uh, what that was either. It's Silvernode. Silvernode is the Silvernode, yeah. yeah. That looks super impressive. The the what was the guy's name that put that together? Do you remember? So there's two people. There's and uh, again, pronunciation. Uh, it's Mart Martin Martian. So, uh, it's got a, it's it, got a J with like the J at the end. Yeah. So what, what, what? Maybe the site. Maybe linking like the site because like I think they totally deserve the credit for that. Is it Silvernode dot handmade dot network? Uh, I gotcha. Handmade dot. Yeah. Okay. Yep, cool. So yeah, that's a super cool project. Yeah, Martin. And, I'm just going to say Martin. I'm sorry if that's incorrect. And then also Marcel. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's it's super impressive what they're doing. And, I mean, ultimately, yeah. there's people doing rendering tech, uh, game like yes. games and graphics, huge, huge thing in the network. Um, there's libraries yeah. like uh, Raylib, uh, which, you know, as, as you know, is super popular in helping people. You know, we were talking about the problem of people getting something up on the screen and see. Uh, mm-hmm. Raylib is one of the easiest ways to do that um and it's yes. it's a really good tool for people who are kind of uh trying to get started there yeah i'm a big i'm a oh, i'm a huge i didn't mean to cut you off i thought you i thought that was a pause i, I just wanted to say yeah I, I totally agree i'm like i'm like the biggest raylib fan in the world i think it's amazing yeah. and i think that anybody that's looking to get started in in uh, game programming you know everybody like if you say i want to make games a lot of people will point you to Unity. A lot of people will point you to another engine. Right. But I, I really think there's so much value into doing it yourself from the ground up. And like, really, if you want an editor, you can make that. And I think obviously the handmade way is to do it all yourself. But I think that might be a little overwhelming at first. So at For least sure. 
for for problems like rendering and and buffers and uh, you know getting something onto the screen and looking at it just to get you motivated to make that next thing. That's where I really think um, Raylib has its value. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, those are probably like that's again people should definitely go check out uh, handmade.network slash projects because yes. there are so many um, one I didn't want to forget to mention was also Risky Business which is a video series uh, where um, uh, Miyoya Rakura develops a, a complete tool chain for a completely open computing platform uh, Risk Five, um, and that is like super impressive he was at uh, Handmade Seattle showing his own custom uh, like computer that he, he actually got Linux up and running on uh, completely open hardware. It was, it was awesome. So yeah, something else. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's crazy. It's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. it's, there's a lot of pieces kind of in the network that are, that are posed to really move the world forward. Uh, and I think to, to kind of go back to what I think of handmade network as I think the, the thing that drives us forward in the next five to 10 years will be tying those pieces together. And, you know, for example, having a new computing platform where, you know, you can control everything and the user is respected and software is written well. Um, and that, that is kind of, I mean, that's sort of what handmade uh, network is all about, which uh, I, I think is really exciting from some, yeah. as somebody who, you know, is going into the field uh it's really exciting to see people who care about software working on the future of software. Yeah. I mean, you say going into the field, but I, I, I would say just from an outsider's perspective and somebody that's been in the field for a while, I mean, the future looks pretty bright for you. You're already super involved and, in, you know, you say getting started, but you're already like pretty deep in there. People know who you are and, and know your projects and, you know, you're leading this thing that is, is looking forward. And that's kind of like um, as somebody that is a little older, I guess, sort of like gives me hope in the future that people are, are looking at this problem and that I guess that are inheriting the technical debt that some of your <laughs> elders have left behind um, and, and, and interested in like fixing it. Like that's a great thing. There's a lot of beautiful and great things about, um, you know, the newer generation. I don't think I'm that much older than you, you know, maybe like a, a there's like a decade of difference there probably. But the yeah, point is, sure. is, is, um, is like it's very inspiring to see it's not just in computing too and without getting too on off topic just like um you know the things that your generation i think i think that's a different generation um is is interested in solving and fixing from software to like the way we treat people and stuff like that is very inspiring to see and it kind of gives me hope for the world and yeah hope for humanity so yeah for sure i, I super appreciate that um Let's, uh, so that, that, that sort of covers, I mean, in some respect, the Handmade Network. I know we don't list every project, but handmade.network slash projects has pretty much um, everything there. And there's also links to the Discord and everything else. And everybody that has a project on there and everybody that's active in the Discord that shares a project is definitely worth checking out because you're going to find like awesome and performance software. And like, I cannot fan for those folks enough because they, I think they super deserve it. They're, they're really like their passion shows through their, their software. So yeah, for sure. Um, I think the, uh, the, the final portion of this, the home stretch Ryan is, uh, if you'd like to talk a little bit about your, uh, personal projects, um, stuff that you're working on right now. And, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about it in the past. Uh, go ahead. What, what if you want to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, on the subject of pushing computing forward, 
for people who have seen the podcast or not seen, but listened to the podcast, um, the episode I had with uh, Alan Webster, uh, we discussed uh, uh, textual programming and storing code as text and the implications that that has. I don't want to say storing code as text, but um, I guess what I would say is using code as the way that programmers interact uh, or using text as the way that programmers interact with code and kind of storing it in this language grammar kind of format. We talked a little bit about the way that that changes the landscape of writing, for example, code editors. Uh, and it makes a lot of problems hard. I, I think we should just for a second to to break down the project here because I think that's that's pretty abstract what you're talking about. It, but yeah. <laughs> at a, at a, yeah, and and it is. It's an abstract conversation. But I just right. I just want to help people, and I I feel like this is this is like my moment right here to like try to <laughs> try to bring this down to like a not so smart person level. So we're talking okay. about like the entire idea of of like opening a text editor and writing code with a keyboard in that way and then either sending it through like an, a compiler or an interpreter or something like that a, a separate thing mm-hmm. to get like that program output we're talking about like and and so that was what alan did in making four coder and what you're talking about is a different an entirely different approach to that right yeah yeah that's correct it's basically the way that i can sum it up is sure it is a reevaluation of the way that we store code in text. And basically it's it's storing the code as the semantic information that a compiler would have. So um, you're not storing like a buffer of characters, for example, uh, that encodes some language ideas, some language semantics, like a for loop. You're not storing the text F-O-R, open paren, you know, I-N-T-I sure. equals whatever. Um, you're actually storing uh, a direct encoding of the semantic information of a for loop. So you're saying, I have a node in my code, it's a for loop, and here are the pieces of it. And basically we're building an entire environment to, uh, when I say we, it's Alan and I, uh, we are building an entire environment to work with code in that way. So the first thing that we're doing is uh, we're writing an editor for it. Um, mm-hmm. And for people who know a little bit about uh, compilers are the way they work a little bit. Uh, it's basically an abstract syntax tree editor. So you have a tree and you are making modifications to this tree. But the important thing to realize is that the code can be rendered and interacted with however we want now. So before, when we used text as the interchange format for code, uh, you open up a text editor and it displays the characters in the way that they were inserted into the file. Um, now, in our editor, what we're able to do is render the code however we want, actually. We can actually traverse the tree um, that encodes the programming language information directly and uh, render it in a multitude of ways. So uh, we can, for example, choose at any granularity which code we would like to have on the screen. We can also display it in a more visual way. Uh, for example, we can also display it as text if we decide that that's the best way to render code. Then we can decide to render it that way. But we're talking about virtually instant, like I mean, not that much time in changing these views, so we can see it in its textual view, in its compiler view, and it's you know all these different views. So what you're essentially doing is taking 
uh, I guess the text form, the compiled form, and like all these different forms and and, compi and and combining them into one thing. And that's why I think it's so hard to explain or like, at a, at a, and I, I totally hear you over there trying to like bring it down a level for, for the rest of us. And I super, I super appreciate that. But I mean, even somebody coming into it, and I've asked you a million questions about it. It's like, it's really hard to understand because it's almost I don't think it's been done before, right? Like something like this, when because it's like it's not even a problem anybody's addressed. It's like anybody that's learning programming, like that's the way it is. You know, you got you either have a text editor or an IDE, and then you have a either have a compiler, interpreter, etc. So like this entire format, um, and some of the gifts you've you've shared of it has, have been like super impressive. Where you're moving these things around and changing the entire structure of it. I'm just trying to think of like an easier way to right, right, to right. like explain that right because it's like it is it is right like something to my knowledge that hasn't been done before i think yeah in terms of there yeah there is uh there is some research happening in this area um and there have been examples of non-textual programming languages the most obvious examples are uh, either scratch. You know, scratch for example or uh like unreal blueprints or any other right, kind of right, game right. engine like drag the nodes together sort of thing sure and I guess the important implication that I would give to people to take away from this is uh, if you're working within a text editor, uh, let's say you want to look up uh, what type a declaration is. Like you want to find out what type something is so that when you hit the dot operator, um, you get a list of all the fields you can choose to like fill out the, to, to, to access some member within like a structure or an object. When you're doing that with text, you need to have access to what the code means, basically. Like, you have to know what the type is. You need to be able to go to some definition that tells you what type you're looking at. Right, and it's going to be in a different file and probably, like, very um, obtuse somewhere, especially if you're coming in from a library and something like that. Like, let's say, you know... Um, I guess this is a bad example because Raylib's a great library, but they have different declarations for like rectangles or, you know, what a vector three is or something like that. But to know exactly what that is, I have to go and look at the header file and then maybe even the, the basic.c file to like figure out how exactly it was declared and how it works. Right. And the editor has to do the same thing if it's trying to figure that same information out. Yes. So the standard solution to this is to have a server that uh, basically understands is able to understand code either by calling into a front end of a compiler or uh, just having its own parser. Uh, I haven't looked at the implementation of language servers, so I don't know exactly how they're, they tend to be implemented, but uh, the general idea is that the editor communicates with these servers through some standardized protocol and the server returns the information back to the editor and says, okay, well, what you're looking at is a struct. It's defined here. Here's what's available. Yeah. Exactly. And it's constantly having to like index these files and like maintain all of this parsed information. And obviously that parsed information breaks if you change a character somewhere. So it has to do all this work yes. all the time. Uh, very complicated. That's why that's why um, the the standardized the industry standard tools are uh, VS or Visual Studio and uh, Xcode, which are like these giant big machines that have all this right. you know stuff in them. Because it's it, it is not a trivial process by any stretch of the imagination, for sure. Right. Yes. For sure. So what you either have to do is you either have to if you're writing an editor, for example, you either have to hook up to these language servers, uh, do a or implement basically the same thing inside your own program. So constantly do a parse of all these different files in the code base, trying to make it as incremental as possible, sometimes very difficult to do, um, depending on the language. Uh, 
or you can result, uh, resort to approximate parsing techniques. So you can say like, well, you know, I see uh, uh, like some text, like a, like a word or something, uh, like alphanumeric characters. And then I see an open paren, kind of looks like a function call. It might be, I don't know, uh, but I'm just going <laughs> to assume it is. So I'm going to yeah. look up that symbol, see if I have something yeah. in the index, like do stuff like that. And Almost like a regex, like let's see if anything matches, you know, like let's exactly. just and it's and it's not smart at all. It's just it's just what well, let's see if something matches this. Yeah, exactly. So, in uh, in this project that we're working on, which is we've uh, right now called it Dion, uh, D I O N. Uh, it's it's generally the idea of having that information available uh, all the time because you're just working within the abstract syntax tree. So if you wanted to look something up, like for example, the definition of a struct that is being used in a declaration, you can actually just basically follow a pointer. It's not literally a pointer, like it's store, it's not stored as a pointer, but it basically is the same idea. So you have this full semantic understanding of what you're doing uh, in the editor all the time. And the same is true for all tools that work with code. So. I think one of the fallacies of uh, existing programming tools is that the only thing that has to have access to this information is the compiler. So uh, that's kind of why there's this wall between uh, code and the compiler. Um, and you kind of have to feed it this text because it was assumed before that only the compiler had to do a parse and figure out what the code actually meant from the from the text file that you gave it, um, because you know code files they're really just like they're indistinguishable. English. Yeah, yeah, they're indistinguishable yeah. from a .txt file. Um, sure. They're stored exactly the same way, and the way that the compiler has to get information out of that is by doing this parsing process. Which um, the parsing isn't that complicated, but uh, the complexities arise when you start having to think about. Uh, parsing an entire code base and having these references between like very far parts away, uh, things that are very far away in the code base and um, large complicated projects. Right. And yeah, generally that assumption, uh, the hypothesis of the project that I'm working on uh, was that that assumption is very harmful in a lot of ways. So what we've decided to do is to reevaluate that assumption and say, okay, well, we know that not just the compiler wants access to this code information. We also know the editor wants it, version control wants it, the debugger wants mm -hmm. it. And what we can see is that within the current ecosystem, the way that you got that information around was by uh, spitting it out in a text format that debuggers, for example, if you use uh, a compiler, it has to know to spit out like a PDB file, for example, for uh, Visual Studio mm -hmm. to read or something like that. Um, just so there can be a binding between the generated uh, instructions and the source code. Right. It is kind of broken if, if you look at it in that, in that glass, you know what I mean? Like through that, right. through that lens, I've actually never, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like cut off your flow, but that was like a, a kind of a, a rev that was like kind of a revelation for me. I never really thought about like how weird that is that like, yeah. we have to like generate a third file just to like figure out what's going on between the, the, the first three, the the code, the code source, the compiler, and the freaking generated, you know, machine right. instructions. Essentially, sorry, that was that was a trip. No, okay. yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's the general idea or the hypothesis of the project was generally that everything seems to get a lot better when you have this information freely available at any time. So basically, we're taking an editor and a debugger and a version control system 
and a compiler. I mean, a compiler is already here, but we're moving it past the front end of a compiler, what that used to be. So basically, we're kicking mm. the front end out, and we're saying there is no front end anymore. And now code is just code, and any tool that works with code can understand that code directly. The different rendering styles is an example of something you can do um, when you have access to the semantic structure of code. Um, and as a result, all syntax disappears. You can't have a syntax error anymore. Um, you There's no such thing as white space. Like You can just adjust how far your tabs are, for example, on the fly. And that, that's a really small benefit. But the benefits really come when you're trying to make your tools smarter about what it is they're dealing with. Um, and I don't want to share like too much information yet because it's still sure. in progress. Sure, sure, sure. But that's the general hypothesis of the project. That's what I've been spending most of my time doing. And I think it's a pretty interesting way forward. I think it ha- it seems to have a lot of benefits. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean... I, I, you have- you have some. Um, I've actually a two-part question. One is uh, you you kind of have some other interesting projects. You, you mentioned the Melodist. Um, we haven't even really talked about uh, DataDesk, Telescope, all these other kind of projects that you're known for. Are right. those kind of on the back burner right now while you work on uh, uh, Dion? Is that is that sort of your main focus? Um, I would say that I don't like to officially put things on back burners because uh, <laughs> my my what I like to work on sort of flows around a lot, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I kind of like to flow in and out of projects, not like, not persistently. Like I like to, like, I'm pretty concerned with getting Dion uh, to a state where I can use it, for example. Um, and like mm. getting it available for other people. Like that's kind of, uh, I would really like for, for it to be available and I would really like it to be shipped. Like, while it's true that I would say that I'm focusing a little bit more on Dion than, like, other projects right now, like the Melodist or, or those mm. sorts of things, um, I, I I wouldn't consider them on the back burner. Like, I sort of, uh, you know, if I find some spare time, I'll uh, work on the Melodist, for example, or uh, we're actually using Datadesk for Dion, um, so oh. I'll, I'll sometimes work on that. And other people are using Datadesk, other people are using Telescope. So it's kind of important for me to yes. kind of go back and, and maintain those projects and make sure that they're still uh, working well. Um, and when it comes to the Melodist, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's been my passion project for years. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm still, I, you know, I really like the project and I'm definitely concerned with getting it done and shipping it. That's uh, that that's sort of the, the next thing for me is, is a, is a passion project like that, that I can chip away at for years. And that, that's actually kind of, um, really nice to hear that you you know you definitely have intentions of working on and and you know finishing everything and and moving forward with stuff because i think a lot of people like myself included are interested in a lot of these projects and um you know because they're not they're not passerby projects they're super like high fidelity stuff super interesting stuff that people are interested in and seeing so that's very exciting for that um and yeah, that sure. sort of leads me into my second question um about about dion and it's it's this how are you addressing um sort of what we talked about earlier with like okay so there's making what works for you in software and like meeting your needs but now you're planning on shipping this product and um, like you've said, it's not a toy. It's something that you know people are going to use and is going to work for everybody. How are you addressing that problem? Where it, that's like sort of the space that everybody's in, and everybody hits the roadblock in, where it's like you're not just making something to fit your needs now. You're making something for everybody. And and I mean, have you? I'm sure you've thought about that problem. What are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, um, it's a pretty interesting problem. Uh, it's It's got a lot of parts to it. The first of which I would probably say is the current dependence on multiple languages. Uh, so people use different languages for different purposes, and largely mm -hmm. not because of the language itself. So uh, the things that make Python, for example, um, maybe for a beginner, the syntax is really useful. Uh, but I think what is more useful later on is the ecosystem of tools around it. Um, I, I agree. Yeah, to, to enable it, yeah. for example, for like a lot of people use it for machine learning because it has uh, right. libraries that enable that kind of thing. If you consider like the differences in actual language semantics between various programming languages, like people have opinions about the way that these things should work, but um, <laughs> like if you if you uh, if you sort of step back and say, okay, if I had an equivalent library to do machine learning, for example, in C, would it be that much worse of a time waste? Like the syntax might be less ergonomic and stuff, but mm. does the does the language hold me back? And I think largely, in some cases, the answer is yes, but I think largely the answer is no. Um, and I think what we're able to do by storing the code in this way is make the editor much more ergonomic for different cases like that. So we, we've, we're not only able to represent what a language can represent, because we don't have to store it as text, so the grammar can be... Uh, much more complicated without, for example, having to fit it into a syntax in a nice way or anything like that. Um, we can also work on the editor front to make various modes of editing much more ergonomic. So the need between languages actually, uh, or the need for different languages goes down in my estimation. Um, obviously, this is very experimental. Uh, I don't want to say anything like sure. definitive, but um, I think largely uh, what we're able to do to make something more ergonomic uh, dramatically outcompetes what you were able to do with, for example, the syntax of a of a language. Um, the t the when it comes to the ecosystem, that's a that's a more difficult problem, and ultimately it comes down to a lot of work by a lot of people. Um, so, my approach with Dion has been, you know, let's figure out uh, what will work for me. Um, so I. You know, I'm not in a super unique position. Like, I write games in C, and I write my own engines in C. And, yeah. you know, let's make it viable for that because that's a problem space that a lot of people are involved in. Um, and then when we have opportunities to expand, um, we want to make sure that we're able to go there, basically. And that's that's kind of a hard problem. It's, there's no, like, rule about here's when you should evaluate that or anything. But I would say that that's our general approach to moving the tool beyond what we're able to do. Uh, but ultimately we, we always want to make sure that we're solving a problem with it. And um, the best way we can do that is to know the problems ourselves. So we're starting with the problems we know and the problems sure. that we're familiar with, uh, but we're still making it a generic tool. And then as it moves forward, uh, we'll be able to consider different problem spaces more effectively. Good point. And, and like, as, as you get feedback and stuff like that from other, from people actually using it. And I mean, that, that'll be a whole fun new set of problems because I think some of the hardest thing about when you, one of the hardest things about when you ship software is like sort of parsing like the legitimate complaints and like grievances <laughs> to like the, you know what I mean? Right. To just like, yeah. um, um, whatever. And, and that's something I think that you'll see. And it's very hard because you can get disenfranchised easily. And I'm sure you've seen it. Um, with the other developers and stuff, but because you want to 
to like make better software and you want to like make the best thing. And usually devs tend to go one of two routes and that's either like give them everything and then it gets ruined because like people don't know what they want or it's like <laughs> give them give them nothing and, and then like it, it doesn't work out that way. So that's sure. definitely like a part a part two type problem and a hard balance to strike. But I just think it's amazing, man, that you're um, that you're thinking about that and like considering all this and that somebody's even thinking about and addressing this problem and looking at it um, in, in this way. And like I said, it gives me hope. Uh, for programming for the future and and for everything else so uh, I think thank you so much to you and Mr. Alan Webster and everybody else that uh, does these types of things and solves these types of problems and and looks at this stuff and makes um, honestly software better for all of us so thank you yeah for sure I mean I'm you know as much as I I try to drive forward with handmade network um, I was inspired by all the handmade projects that sort of were before me and I you know when I would use those projects uh, for my own needs, like I used Milton, for example, or Remedy BG or Forcoder. And, um, you know, those were like complete, they, those completely changed my perspective on programming. And, uh, so, you know, I can't, I can't take, uh, too much credit there, uh, because, uh, the entire community is just, uh, is sort of responsible for, uh, all the great things that are happening. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's super exciting. I'm really excited for the future. I'm really glad to be a part of it. Cool. I, I think um, I, I think we're probably right at time. And, and I mean, yeah. unless you think that there's anything that we missed, we could probably, um, I think we can wrap this up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't have anything else. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a great conversation. So thanks, yeah, thanks for I, doing it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Let, thanks for letting um, somebody relatively new come in and, and interview you and bring a different perspective. And I hope that we achieved our goal of, uh, of, of sort of bringing it down a level. And I do apologize for like the, the interruptions at various places, but I thought like, okay, okay, uh, yeah, if it was leaving like my namespace, like uh, to use a C plus plus reference, right? Like (laughs) I thought, I thought, man, man, there's no way. So like, like if my wife listens to this podcast, she's not going to get it. So, you know what I mean? So that, that's the idea there. So thanks again, Ryan. Thanks so much for um, the time and and thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, Take it easy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.